0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Are we really comfortable traveling right now? Since the detection of the Omicron variant of COVID-19, I think there's a lot of people who are rethinking things. There's a new Leger poll out this morning. It's an online survey. But it suggests that more than four in five people say they actually support closing the Canadian border to travellers that are coming from specific countries where the variant is already present. Well, here's the thing. It's pretty much present, at least in a few cases, in just about every country out there that Canadians probably want to travel to at this point. Right now, we have measures put in place uh, against visitors who have travelled through 10 African countries. That's to try to curb the spread. But I wonder if any of this is detracting people from planning those big trips. Well, joining us now to talk more about all of this is Jim Byers, a travel journalist. Jim, thanks for joining us this morning.
2: No problem, Simi. How are you?
1: Good, thank you. Do you think people still want to get out there and travel?
2: Uh, <laughs> maybe not as much as they did two weeks ago. Um, you know, it's funny, tourism and, and, and travel really around the world, Simi, and, and here in Canada. were really poised for, for for takeoff as recently as two weeks ago. I mean, the numbers were really quite high. Confidence was high. Airlines were restoring routes, you know, from uh, Edmonton, Vancouver, you know, to Palm Springs, places like that. And then all of a sudden, whack, here comes this Omicron 2 by 4 right across the knees. And uh, it really took the the travel and tourism industry, really took their breath away. And I think at this point, people are are really starting to rethink a little bit.
1: So do you think that people are, there's limitations on where they'll go? As you mentioned, like here here in BC, I think it's people think, oh, Palm Springs, California, Arizona, I can go somewhere like that. But what about beyond?
2: Well, I think beyond is problematic, given the fact that, you know, Canada brought in its new rules a week ago, although they're still not seemingly in place all across the country. But Canada, a week ago, uh, federal government said that all uh, travelers coming into Canada, including those who are fully vaccinated, including Canadians, would have to be not only tested 72 hours before their flight, but also be tested upon arrival and isolate for up to three days while they wait. Now, that's only for flights coming from destinations other than the United States. So you would have to think, if you're a traveler, and you think, hmm, I could go to Panama City, or I could go to uh, the Caribbean, right. or I could just go to Florida or, or Palm Springs, not have to worry about isolating at a hotel for three days, you're probably going to opt for that U.S. trip.
1: So what kind of, oh, that's a huge blow then to the tourism industry.
2: Yeah, well, for sure, you know, especially those airlines that are flying to those places, like the Caribbean to Central America, to Mexico, uh, if those, those uh, rules stay in place, it certainly favors trips to the U.S. But I think a lot of times what happens with, with things like this I mean, is, you know, I'm, I'm in the travel industry and I'm kind of used to rules and regulations being changed. But for the average person, you know, I think they, they look at these things and all they see is, like, they see the noise, right? They, they see travel ban, travel right. restrictions, uh, travel rules, blah, 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 testing. And I think a lot of people just kind of throw up their hands, unfortunately, for the industry and just think it's, it's not worth it. You know, I mean, the, that Leger, uh, Leger poll that you mentioned a few minutes ago, suggested that only 10% of Americans and only 13% of Canadians plan to travel over the holiday season. Now, I don't know what the numbers would have been like three years ago, but that's not many.
1: No, that's not many at all. But I think you're right, though. I think just, the, just hearing in the news all the problems that there's an awful lot of people who probably said in the back of their minds, I'm not going anywhere until this is all said and done.
2: Well, that's, that's the issue. you know, it, it, It's almost just like a, a whole the whole wave of Of negativity, and uh, things were so positive, as I mentioned, even two or three weeks ago, and then all of a sudden, here comes Omicron. Now, we are seeing studies from the U.S. and Dr. Fauci, uh, and from South Africa, Dr. Fauci from the the U.S. uh, Centers for Disease Control, and and was talking yesterday about uh, that it doesn't seem to be that the variant is quite as bad As Delta, the early reports are fairly good. If that continues to hold, then maybe some of this, you know, uh, concern or or jitteriness will start to ease. But I think for the next few weeks, we're still going to see people just just putting things off a little bit, maybe looking to the spring or even summer of next year before they do any, you know, travel outside the country.
1: Yeah. Do you think that people have their safe zones of kind of where I feel like international travel is where a lot of people still draw the line? I
2: think so. And, you know, you you made the good point in, a minute ago when in the intro there where you are talking about how uh, I think the New Leger poll says that 82% of Canadians say that they support a travel ban on countries where uh, the Omicron variant is, is present. Well, that's everywhere. So, I mean, it's pretty much the whole world, as you, as you mentioned. So uh, it, it doesn't seem that Canadians are really keen to do a lot of international travel. And I think all of these restrictions, all of these rules, all of these reports of late, just point to more people doing things within Canada which is good for Canadian tourism and maybe some things like you said in those those tried and true places that they know they might think to themselves well I'm not sure I should go to Spain but hey I've been going to Palm Springs for 20 years
1: exactly I know I
2: know I won't have any problem there or I go to Hawaii or I go to Arizona so I think the people that have done that, and, you know, don't forget, if you, if you own a place, lucky enough to own a place, or renting a, a, a condo or a home, you probably feel a little bit more safer than you might in a, in a hotel. So I, I think for people that, that have those places that they go to year after year, I think a lot of those people will will end up still going. I, I think it's more likely the casual person that had been thinking right. about it. Uh, that lifelong trip or just putting it off for a few weeks or a few months.
1: Is the industry also having trouble, uh, Jim, getting people to come back? You know, I know the airlines have been hiring people like crazy in anticipation of people, you know, flying again. But it seems to me it's pretty tough these days to find all these employees.
2: Well, sure. I mean, we're seeing that now, it it, it seems with the airport testing. I mean, mean, some of the airports have been sort of hinting that the reason they haven't got those tests up a week after the federal government announcement is that they don't have the workers or they don't have the the, the ability to, to get that up and running. Um, You know, anecdotally, I was in uh, Banff, uh, you know, back when we were kind of traveling again, back in July, I was in Banff for a couple of days as well as Vancouver. And I noticed uh, in Banff, all of the workers were from like Ontario. And so instead of everybody being from Australia, they couldn't get the Australians or the Kiwis to come over the way they usually do because of travel bans. So they were hiring a lot of people from Ontario but if those people from Ontario are coming to Banff, they're not working in Ontario, which
3: means right. that, you know,
2: places in Toronto or, or Ottawa or Kingston, what have you, may, maybe they're having some trouble with workers. So I, I think that that has been an issue. Um, let's face it, you know, a lot of tourism jobs, especially in, you know, hotel cleaners and things like that, aren't exactly the top of the pay scale. And, you know, if, mm-hmm. if those, uh, those workers had uh, good government subsidies, and, and they did in some cases, they might think, eh, maybe I'll just stay home.
1: So then, Jim, what do people need to know if they are willing to like go out in the certain, like, let's say they're willing to go to the United States. What are the rules right right now for that? Because even those seem to be changing a little bit.
2: Yeah, the the U.S. just a few days ago, semi-changed the rules. So it used to be up until about a week ago that uh, anyone flying into the U.S. had to have a negative uh, test. Now, it could be one of the rapid antigen tests. Uh, It doesn't have to be PCR. The rapid tests are fairly quick, usually 15, 20 minutes, maybe half an hour and only about 40 bucks. Versus the PCR, which is a couple hundred dollars. So the US doesn't require as strict a testing, but they changed the rules. Instead of being what was three calendar days before your uh, flight, it's now one calendar day. So, for example, if you were flying from Vancouver to uh, San Francisco uh, at five o'clock on a Friday, you would have to take your test sometime between Thursday and midnight and your, your departure time. Uh, so it's within, you know, that one calendar day. So that's a bit of a, a problem for some folks. It, I don't think it's a, a huge thing for, uh, for most travelers. I mean, the tests are available usually within about half an hour. So even getting your test within a day is probably not a huge issue for, for a lot of folks. But, you know, for a casual traveler, they might think, eh, you know, I'm not sure where to get tested. Maybe it's a holiday. Maybe they don't think the drugstore is gonna be open. Maybe they don't feel like it. Maybe it's you know, the weather's bad and they don't want to make mm-hmm. the trip down to get the trip. There's there's any number of reasons that people might think, you know, it's just not worth the trouble. So going back to the point I made earlier, anytime there's any extension of a travel ban, any talk of a travel ban, any restrictions, it just generally puts a damper on the industry and on people's thoughts about travel in general. I think that's what we're seeing again now, which is unfortunate for sure.
1: I think that's very true. And I guess we should also remind people, Jim, even if they're thinking about going somewhere, download that ArriveCan Can app.
2: Uh, Yes. Now, we did see yesterday that the federal government kind of came to its senses and and told folks that, you know, it either had forgotten to to download the app or hadn't filled it out properly, that they could arrive back at the border and show the actual documentation, which seems quite reasonable. So there, there seems to me there's been a lot. I, and I don't want to dump on the government. I'm not a I'm not an anti-government person. But it seems to me a lot of these things have been rather half baked. You know, the, right. the whole idea of the arrival can happen. Oh well, that's, that's okay. You don't need to fill it in after all. And and you know you have to go to uh, uh you have to stop somewhere on your way home from South Africa. Well, maybe that's not so fair after all. Maybe we'll change that. It seems that there's been a lot of one step forward one and a half step back sort of things. And and that's that's that seems to me to be a lack of forethought and a lack of planning on the on the federal government's part which, in some cases.
1: Which I think just makes some people want to stay home. So Jim, thank you very yeah. much for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks, Jim. How good Jim Byers is a travel journalist. You can read more at jimbyerstravel.com, but I think he's right. There's people who think I have a little safe area that I'm okay going to travel to, and then there's other people who don't want to go anywhere until this is done. Let me know which camp you fall into. Simi at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: We know the community of Merit is really struggling right now to try to put things back together. Everybody is doing what they can, including a local business there. It's a Merritt brewery, actually, making very good use of their large kettles. We're going to find out how right now with the help of Kyle Hall, who is the owner of the Empty Keg Brewhouse. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Uh, live and kicking. <laughs> Can't ask for more than that, can we, at this point? Absolutely. So how is it that you're helping out? First of all, where are you located, and how are you helping out in Merritt?
4: Well, thankfully, we're on the, the high side of Merritt. Uh, so we weren't, uh, the business itself was not affected by uh, by the floodwaters. Um, but there's uh, uh, so many others that have been affected, as as we see in the news. And uh, we kind of came upon the, um, the idea uh, roughly about a week ago, a little more than a week ago, actually. We said... Uh, with all these people coming back into town, with the influx of residents coming back in uh, and the boil water advisory, hey, we've got these kettles. Uh, why don't we make some boiled water for, uh, for the residents and take one more thing off of their plate as they come back?
1: That is so nice. So how, what does that involve? How do you do that?
4: Well, I mean, uh, the uh, the process of brewing beer uh is is a boiling operation in, in one of the processes, so uh it's not that hard to uh to sanitize those kettles and uh and uh, throw some water in there and and we get her up to to a boil and uh interior health wants us to do it for uh, for a minute, but we do it for 5 minutes. Uh we actually use our our three-stage uh filtration unit uh, uh with the water before it even goes in for boiling, so just a little extra precaution as well.
1: So then, how are you distributing that?
4: Well, the uh, uh, our residents are coming in with uh, with their containers and uh, and uh, getting getting them filled up. And we uh, we went through over seven hundred liters, I think, in the first week. And uh, I've got another uh, uh, kettle ready to go for the, for this week coming. And uh, I'll make sure there's uh, there's lots as long as we can do it.
1: Wow, that is amazing to do that. But how did did the word just spread, Kyle, or did you have to put the word out?
4: Well, we put the word out, um, did a bit of a press release. I uh, wanted to make sure that uh, that everybody knew about it because, uh, uh, you know, it's no sense just doing it and, and doing it by word of mouth. So, of course, you know, the old social media stuff and all that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> That's right. Um, so, it's, uh, yeah, it spread, and it's, uh, it's wonderful to see people come in and say, you know what, thanks, this is, you know, one last thing I've got to do. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a little tiny thing that we can do, but uh, if we can do a small thing to help the community, we'll do it. When we um, when we had the opportunity when COVID hit, uh, even though we're not a distillery, we we made hand sanitizer and offered it uh, free to the residents, uh, and and uh, we continue to do that. So, whatever we can do, uh, we'll, we'll support uh, our our local uh, local friends, and uh, and we we like to call them all family because we're kind of a one big family here in Merritt.
1: Sure, sounds like it, Kyle. What's it like in Merritt right now?
4: Well, lots of mixed emotions. I mean. Uh, seeing a lot of ones that are you know caked in mud as they come in and uh because they've been dugging out their basements and their crawl spaces and you know picking through their things to try and make sense of of life as it is right now um but at the same time i see a lot of yeah, you know the community really pulling together and and people uh, uh people having some satisfaction to helping out their their neighbor right next to them and uh and, and that's good I, I i like to see that it's um It really shows that we'll get through this. It's going to be tough,
1: but we'll get through it. Well, you're certainly doing your part. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us this morning. You bet. And best of luck. That's Kyle Hall, owner of the Empty Keg brew House. Next time you're in Merritt, when things are better, when the situation allows it and we can travel up to Merritt, stop in and see them and give them a thank you. What they're doing right now is they're using their giant beer-making kettles to boil water because there's a boil water advisory in Merit. And so they're boiling water, making it safe, and then giving it to Merit residents for free just to help people, you know, in this time of need, which I think is amazing, right? Every little bit counts.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: So the health minister, Adrian Dix, is reminding people that while the Omicron variant needs attention, they believe the main focus should still be on the Delta variant because of the impact it has had on us here in BC, and in particular on people who remain unvaccinated. But we're looking ahead, right? We can't help but worry about this new strain. So how worried should we be? Joining us now to talk more about that, once again, Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Hello, Dr. Conway. Good morning. So the last time we talked to you, we were just learning about this. What have you learned in the last week about Omicron?
3: Well, we're still about a week away from knowing exactly what we need to know about how well the vaccine works against it, how transmissible it is. But there was some interesting reporting yesterday about the fact that omicron may be more transmissible but less virulent it may cause less severe disease so ultimately there is the possibility that if and when omicron replaces delta there will be more cases but many many less severe cases we'll know more about that next week but in the meantime we still live in covid world
1: So true. Um, Given that you study this and you work in this area, what generally happens with viruses then? As they continue to mutate, do they weaken or can they still take a turn and become stronger?
3: Well, let's introduce a new term we haven't talked about. Mutate is a virus just changing its spots, changing a little bit of its genetic code. And we know Omicron has the most mutations of any variant that we've seen up until now. The other thing viruses can do is to recombine So if they find a close cousin, let's say another coronavirus, that may just cause the common cold and not more severe disease, the COVID virus can exchange some of its genetic code with one of those viruses, and that is what may contribute to it causing less severe disease. This recombined descendant may cause less severe disease. So that's what scientists are really looking into in the days ahead.
1: Hmm. Okay, so that's what they are looking for, because we keep hearing about that, right, about how many times the virus has changed.
3: Exactly. Viruses, as they change, in general terms, they will become weaker because the virus that's out there that we call the wild-type virus or the original virus is probably the most efficient of all the naturally occurring variants that there can be. And as it mutates away from that, it usually loses some of its strength. So I think that this is this is how we need to think of viruses that eventually, they can recombine, they can mutate to become more dangerous, but the opposite is generally more correct in nature. So let's see if this is the case with Omicron.
1: So what do you see unfolding where where these cases are causing a concern? What have you observed there?
3: Well, we observed more transmissibility. If we see in South Africa with Omicron, it basically took over the landscape in days to weeks, but it did not lead to an increase in hospitalization. Reminding ourselves that you have to wait several weeks to see that because it's a lagging indicator. It's something that happens three to four weeks after transmission patterns have changed. But still, to this date, we haven't seen this increase in hospitalization. So there's there's some hope that this is not going to be as severe a virus in terms of causing hospitalizations, deaths and the like as Delta. But again, people are working very hard and we're about a week or so away from knowing for sure if this is the case.
1: Right. So then Dr. Conway, when we, when we take that into consideration then, I'm not, I'm not sure, should we consider that a good thing or a bad thing?
3: Well, I consider it a bad thing because it means that COVID is still around. It means that we still haven't learned to decrease the rate of transmission. We're still not vaccinating fast enough in the right populations. People are still not necessarily following all the rules. If we look back to eastern Canada, where they're more into a winter than we are, there was a significant increase in transmission rates related to people spending more time indoors and unsafely indoors. So I think we still need to remember that COVID is around. If you haven't been vaccinated, go get vaccinated. And there are still rules. Obviously, we've put some breaks on how many people can go indoors for discretionary activities by having our vaccine verification process and that helps, but we all need to, to use these rules very, very much to the letter right now as we go indoors and we need to get vaccinated if we have not yet chosen to do so.
1: The whole thing, and we've been hearing that message from Dr. Henry too, right? About social gatherings and limiting all of that, you know, here we are two weeks before Christmas. Do you think people are listening though?
3: Well, a nanos poll at the end of October said that only 15% of Canadians thought at the time that COVID was was still a, a very significant issue in their lives. People want to move past it, but the safest way to move past it is actually to pay more attention to it. As you get to learn to live with COVID around, you will decrease transmission rates, you'll be allowed to do more and more, and you'll learn that it can be done in a way that approaches the old normal. The new normal can be very pleasant and it'll be even more pleasant as COVID transmission rates decrease. And we have the power to do that. It's up to each of us.
1: But do you mean it'll be more pleasant? What do you see?
3: Well, we will see less transmission of all respiratory viruses. We will recall that in British Columbia last year with all the measures in place, rather than four or 5,000 cases of the flu, we had 18. So as these measures... Get more normal as we get used to staying home when we're sick, as we get used to wearing masks in certain uh, circumstances, as we get used to getting our shots be it the COVID shot, the flu shot, and any other shot that will be proposed to us going forward we will see that that is a way for individuals to stay healthy, for populations to stay healthy, and for us to be allowed to do more and more things together and approach the old normal. And we'll be healthier doing it. We won't be having coughs, colds, the flu, and so on. So we will potentially be happier in that way.
1: You don't think we'll forget? I wondered that about that over time. If we'll forget about the washing your hands and the, all of that, then will we, you don't think we'll ever get back to normal when it comes to colds and coughs and flu? Well,
3: of course we'll forget. Over time, that's what happened after the last pandemic of 1918. Your point is very well taken. People were very scrupulous in applying the rules back then for a couple of years, and then it, it slid back. But it didn't slide back all the way. And I think that the, the whole issue of washing our hands, staying home when we're sick, for instance, this issue of the mandated sick days across the entire province, which will be five, will be encouraging people to stay home when they're sick. You won't have people toughing it out. I think that'll potentially uh, be uh, be permanent. I think that uh, we will hopefully all have masks in our back pocket, as was true in many uh, cultures in many situations before COVID. But I think that might be mainstreamed and might uh, might persist. We'll backslide, but at the time that we choose to backslide, there'll be much, much less COVID around. So it won't necessarily have that much of a consequence as it does now. So I'm hopeful.
1: I love that. I love that every time we talk to you, you're hopeful. Dr. Conway, thank you for your time. <laughs>
3: Thanks for having me. That's
1: Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre, talking about the new variant, how concerned we should be. But as always, he's talking about looking down the road and what this is going to be like, believing that we'll see fewer you know, respiratory illnesses as a result of dealing with COVID. And let's just hope that is the case.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, the Vancouver Canucks won their first game under new head coach Bruce Boudreau last night. And I wonder if Canucks fans are feeling particularly optimistic today given, well, the last couple of weeks. Anyway, joining us now is Rob Williams, Daily Hive Sports Editor. Good morning, Rob.
5: Good morning, Simi. There's hope again with the <laughs> Canucks fans.
1: Do you think that's it? Is that, all, is that what it took to get hope again?
5: It is. I, I mean, I think, it, yeah, it's the combination of uh, obviously a new coach which which can have a... An instant impact, and then also having uh, a new general manager, even if it is just a, a, an interim general manager in stance meal and you know that's more of a long-term uh, play because it involves you know the picking of players on the team. But um, you know, I think just be, the last seven seasons, eight seasons, have, have been largely disappointments. So uh, some sort of change, something to look forward to. Um, I think that's that's massive for, for Canucks fans right now. Um, I think that people believe in a lot of their good young players like Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes, but um they, you know, they it just hasn't been good enough to this point. This yeah.
1: Year. Do you think there's also, Rob, though, been a disconnect between the community and the organization? And I noticed this came up during the press conference yesterday with Francesco Aquilini and Stan Smeal, where it feels like there's just not enough communication on the higher levels of the organization with members of the community.
5: Yeah, I mean, it was a rare time where Francesco Aquilini, um, you know, spoke to the media in in a press conference setting, uh, you know, about three years ago now when, when Trevor Linden was let go, uh, basically dodged any of the questions, right. You don't, nobody wants to be the guy that, uh, that fired Trevor Linden, right. right. Or, or amicably split ways as they, as they, as they said at the time. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, for me, I, I don't need the owner to be, to be speaking to the media all the time. Uh, I, I think the, the biggest,
1: the, well, even Jim Benning, topic, though, Rob, though, we hardly ever heard from yeah. Jim Benning, you know, like, and Travis Green ended up having to front all the uncomfortable questions.
5: Yeah, I agree. I, I think a, a really smart move for the organization would be to have a, a director of hockey operations and have somebody that, you know, like they had with Trevor Linden, but have that person kind of only coming out for the big topics. Uh, you know, when when you're asking about the investigation into Jake Vertanen, for instance, um, you shouldn't be the guy making trades necessarily that, that's doing that. It should be right. somebody looking at overseeing those kinds of things. Uh, Aquiline, quite frankly, he's not good at answering questions. <laughs> he's, not, he's not comfortable in that setting. It's, it's really obvious. Um, but then but hire yeah, no, somebody can confront that, right? Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think it would be good to, to answer questions. But the problem has been in the last seven, eight years is that there's been so many times where things have gone off the rails, where they need to bring somebody up to, to answer questions. Exactly.
1: So do you feel that yesterday was, uh, I mean, obviously this is unprecedented. It's very rare to see something like this in the middle of the season. Did you hear things that, that you think, okay, maybe now they're on the right track?
5: Uh, I, yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. I, I think Bruce Boudreau is, is the right coach for this group right now. And, you know, he's got such a, you know, his reputation precedes him. He, he's, he's had success in, Every organization that uh, that he's that he's coached, at, he's you know, he's he's up there among top twenty you know wins in NHL history for coaches. Um, he's also the type of player, the type of coach that can, I think, reach players like Pedersen, who's been struggling, and Besser, who's been struggling, um, just in terms of you know more of an up tempo style of play. He wants them playing more aggressively uh, than they have uh, previously, and. Uh, He's, he's had success with, with young players. He's had success with offensive players. So I think in that respect, he, 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 what he can provide is an instant jolt of positivity and maybe give him a jolt of confidence right off the hop here. And, and maybe that gets him going because they're, they're better players than they've shown so far.
1: Oh, they certainly are that. I think everybody knows that. That's what we've been feeling about the team too. Rob, thanks so much for your time on that. Any them. Appreciate that. Rob Williams is the Daily Hive sports editor talking about the new Vancouver Canucks. Same players, but entirely new people behind the bench, behind the scenes. Will that make a difference? So, what you've heard over the last, you know, thirty-six hours from the team are you kind of one foot back on the bandwagon? Do you feel more hopeful about the Canucks or do you think, no, you know what? I want to see them start winning first. You can email me, simmy at cknw.com or give us a call on our buzz line, 604-331-2899. I, th- I think a lot of people who've been burnt so many times before just feel like, I think I'm going to wait and see on this one and see how it goes.
0: This is Mornings with Simmy.
1: Well, BC's highway system is, well, in a state right now. We know that. All the flooding from a couple of weeks ago has just wreaked havoc on our transportation infrastructure. And things are slowly getting better. But when you see the pictures, right, of the devastation, particularly the Coquihalla, you think, how? How are they getting this stuff back in shape so quickly? So right now we know that Highway 7 between Mission and Abbotsford will no longer be considered essential travel only that happened yesterday afternoon so it's open now highway 11 has opened to single lane alternating traffic in both directions between mission and abbotsford highway three the government officials say it's holding up well but they got a lot of crashes on that route they're causing backups, so they're deploying more police there to make sure traffic moves better And then there's Highway 5, which is the Coquihalla, an absolutely necessary connector for us. While work on that continues around the clock, and we heard from Rob Fleming that they're hopeful that they can open the Coquihalla to commercial traffic at the end of January. Now, I've seen the pictures, so have you. How is that going to be possible? So we wanted to talk to the people who are responsible for getting all this stuff back up and running. Joining us now is Kelly Scott from the BC Road Builders and Heavy Construction Association. Good morning, Kelly. Morning, Simmy. How busy are you guys right now?
6: Well, for the uh, last uh, three weeks, it's been uh, 27 hours a day. No and, uh, kidding. And the industry is, uh, has reacted and uh, has really come together on this. So, uh, yes, yeah, extremely busy.
1: Is it all hands on deck, Kelly? Like, have you had to hire more people or companies just going
6: 24-7? It's a combination. We've had uh, some of our contractors have been uh, slowing down, so they've had operators and equipment available. We've had other contractors, such as up at uh, Site C, whose uh, dirt-moving phase was over at Site C, so they had equipment and operators available. So it's a combination of all. We've uh, Most of the contractors had employees available. They didn't have to go out and hire a bunch more, and, and a lot of the equipment was available as well.
1: Can you give us an idea, Kelly, of what goes into these kinds of road repairs? Like, does, I've seen the pictures of the Coquihalla. I know everybody else has, too. What has to happen to make that road drivable again.
0: Well,
6: well first is going to be the assessment with the geotechs going in there, uh, the engineers and that and, and uh, going in there safely is a big one. It's uh, we're you know as you know the snow will be flying soon but uh, before we really go in and take all that equipment in, we need to make sure that the ground is safe uh, and then we go in with the equipment and and take direction from Ministry of Transportation as to where and how uh, they want to start uh, rebuilding and redesigning the the Cokalala.
1: Will there be redesigns the pro- involved here?
6: Oh, uh, we we would think so. Uh, again, the engineers would know better. But once they've done their assessment, which they're they're doing now, and we're going to start seeing some projects being tendered here in the next while. Um, yes, we'll be seeing some rebuilding going on and redesign. One thing about ministry, they always seem to be uh, leading uh, at looking around the world as to best practices for. This type of uh, these types of roads that we're going to be building and rebuilding.
1: Okay, so you said like the projects will be going out to tender. So what is the status of them right now? Are they kind of in the design phase right now?
6: There is a combination of uh, that. Uh, looking at who the qu- contractors, who what contractors are qualified to bid on this work. Um, so the ministry is doing that with uh, uh, partnership for infrastructure BC as we speak.
1: So what's the construction part like of this then? Is it putting the dirt back in place and then like paving over the road? Once you guys can get in there, how long will it take?
6: Oh, good question. Uh, how long a piece of string? Um, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, it, it, will, it will take us a while. Uh, once the designs are done... Uh, once we've been able to excavate and clear up the sites and uh, determine what ne- next needs to be done so you know our time frame is pretty good I think on the coke the the intention is to get it open to commercial traffic from what we understand from ministry uh, it won't be like it was certainly but at least we'll be able to get some of the trucks coming through I know we have some temporary bridges coming in to help uh, uh, take some of the uh, overload of traffic that's going down the number three down the number five so so there are temporary solutions. Uh, the permanent solutions uh, we'll hear more about from ministry over the next little while.
1: So you said it won't be like it was. What do you mean?
6: Oh, well, it's not going to be 130 kilometers an hour, uh, uh, two, four, or th- you know, three lanes going each way. Uh, we'll have a temporary solution to getting the traffic through, but it won't be the permanent solution that the ministry is planning to do for us.
1: So, when I mean, obviously you know the roads really well, you know the highways, Kelly. Do we need to do things differently, do you think?
6: Well, I think uh, with climate change, with the heat dome, the forest fires, uh, the world's changed. You know, the coke was built 30-odd 30, 30 years ago. Things were different back then. And ministry is ahead of the curve on that one. They've been looking around the world, looking at what the technologies are in Europe, to say, what can we bring those uh, work practices in the British Columbia. And we're, we're not, we're unique in some way, but we're not unique in that, you know, you go to Europe, you see a lot of this type of terrain over there and they've learned to work around that as well. And they are going through these slides and, uh, disasters that we've just gone through.
1: When, when you see the timeline then, and when you hear the timeline, is it realistic to think that, okay, we could have something open on the Co- Coquihalla for commercial traffic by the end of January?
6: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, we've been in there, as I say, for three weeks, uh, poking around, trying to figure out what's the best route with Ministry of Transportation and the engineering people. And, and, and they've, they've identified that. And now with these temporary bridges coming in, we, we think that's, a, 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 we concur. Sometime in late January should be okay for us to get, again, not as we had it before, but we will be getting some traffic through. And we need to alleviate you know, uh, number three, we have to get some of that uh, heavy trucks off of that road and on to number five and hopefully get number one going again.
1: Do Could BC, do you think, stand for another route or two through the interior of the province?
6: You know, it's always been a question. I don't know where you would go. You know, you've got the Coke, which is just a, a terrific design and, and worked very well for 30 years for the province and for the economy of British Columbia, number one is what we always used to do coming down the canyon and of course number three um it's it's okay but it's not it's really not made for the big trucks and the commercial traffic and you've got to think of those truckers too they need to make time and the cocoa ha- have allowed them to make some good time going into the interior
1: so you're saying essentially the bones of what we have now are the bones is probably what we're going to have in the future
6: yeah, you know, we've been stitching this province together for 60 years as road builders, working with ministry. And I, I you know, I think as you look around, there aren't a lot of areas that you can go through uh, to open up any more uh, uh, um, paths to the interior.
1: Now, I understand you guys were supposed to have your your annual convention. Did that get canceled?
6: No, no, it uh, was certainly a modified one. Uh, It was a time to meet directly with ministry, and we did talk about the challenges ahead of us uh, going forward, short-term, medium, and long-term, and also a reassurance to government that the BC road builders are ready, willing, and able. We have the capacity for the work, uh, and it was a a very good open forum on both sides, and a chance to just talk to each other instead of being the virtual one-dimensional screen to actually see somebody and talk to them about what's going on behind their mask. Right. Uh, as as we see this thing going forward. Uh, so no, it was a real good chance to do that. But saying that, uh, half the uh, attendees had to stay back because uh, we have some significant uh, work to be done in the province right now.
1: Right. So how is the communication then, would you say, from the ministry?
6: Oh, uh, my new BFF is Rob Fleming. So uh, <laughs> it's, um, he, uh, he and his ministry, it's, it's spectacular. We were very, very impressed. They had the their uh, brain trust was at our conference. They met with our contractors in a closed door session. I think we had over a hundred contractors there talking to them, sharing best practices, what they're going through, and that. So uh, we think it's as, as good as we've ever seen.
1: Well, that's good to hear. Listen Kelly, thank you so much for joining us this you morning.. Best. Appreciate bet, Simmy. it, Simmy. And best of luck. Kelly Scott is with the BC Road Builders and Heavy Construction Association. You heard them. They are ready to get in there and get back to work. And they said they are going to do that. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, it is the first time this is ever going to be happening in Vancouver. It feels like a long time coming, though. The inaugural Vancouver International Black Film Festival will take place online. It's December 9th to the 12th, so coming up in just a couple of days. And we're talking 38 films from seven countries. So how did this all happen? How did it come together? So joining us now to talk about the event is Fabian Colas, president and founder of the Black Film Festivals in Canada. Fabian, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Simi for having me. How did this come together then? How much planning has this taken to make this happen?
7: Oh, wow. I think it's a lifetime because we've been thinking about Vancouver for the longest time because Vancouver is one of the most important and largest film hub in North America. And it was about time that the Black Film Festival movement come to Vancouver because it's been 17 years in Montreal with the Montreal Black Film Festival. And then we are also in Toronto with the Toronto Black Film Festival and also in Halifax and Calgary and Ottawa. So um, Vancouver was really the place to be, and we we're very happy to be here and to bring this diversity movement uh, right there.
1: Wow, 17 years in Montreal. Yeah, you're right. It should have been coming to Vancouver a long time ago. <laughs> so what can we expect if we, if we check this out online? What will we see?
7: Well, first of all, please allow me to uh, explain to the viewers that this is a very necessary festival right here in Vancouver because representation matters, because it's important that we not only see ourselves re- reflected um, as, a, you know, as a society, as a diverse society on screen, but also it's important that people get inspired and learn about other people, you know, stories. So that's what um, this festival is bringing. It's inspiration, it's education it's empowerment, it's fantastic, and it's for everybody. So these films um, are, you know, both comedies and dramas and documentaries from all over the world. And they are there for everybody to really enjoy. And it's going to entertain people in an impactful way, if I may say.
1: I hope so. Yeah, you're certainly selling it. So you've had participation, (laughs) though, from all sorts of celebrities, too, haven't you?
7: Yes, yes, yes. I mean, over the years, we've been, uh, you know, welcoming people like uh, Harry Belafonte, Spike Lee, um, Alfrey Woodard, and so many, so many, so many other ones, you know, and then also some Canadian powerhouse also, like Clement Virgo, um, uh, you know... Um, you know, uh, so many, so many, so many other ones that came to support the movement and participated. And we hope um, soon enough we're all going to be having, you know, celebrities, both national and international, coming to Vancouver also. But the most important thing for us is that The festival in Vancouver, the Black Film Festival in Vancouver, becomes a hub for local artists as well. Local black artists that otherwise would not have been seen or heard. And for the pleasure of um, everybody, you know, Mm -hmm. to really
1: discover new talent, diverse talent in the city. Now you've got 38 films from seven countries. How do you determine what makes it into the festival? Oh, I
7: wish I had the answer to that because I'm not part of the programming team, and then they had the very, very difficult task to do that. They're the best in the market, so because they also work with uh, the Montreal, Toronto, and the other markets as well. So I think it was uh, it was very hard um, to really choose. But we had a call for application for submission, so we received a lot of films, and then they they went through all that, and they saw really what would be. Um, the most relevant ones for this first edition and um, for the pleasure of everybody in Vancouver but you know what because it's online everybody in British Columbia can enjoy them and everybody in the country can enjoy them because it's totally online
1: oh that sounds amazing so are there stories Fabienne that you feel really need to be told like is that is that's the important reason for the festival
7: Yes, yes, yes. Um, first of all, there is a program that we put together nationally called Being Black in Canada. It's sponsored by Netflix and, and in national bank and Telefilm Canada and Canada Media Fund and so many other partners. Being Black in Canada is a series of short films um, from several cities. Um, in Canada, and then also an incubator program where we teach emerging Black artists how to create a short film from beginning to end, and then we screen them all in the Black Film Festivals in Canada. Well, we're very delighted to say that the 2020 cohort of Being Black in Canada will be, um, is part of this festival as well. So we have 20 films from Toronto, Montreal, and Halifax being screened this weekend as well, part of this um, festival. But the good news is, by next year, by the second edition of the Vancouver Black Film Festival, we will have people from Vancouver also part of this um, program, so people can see some local talent. So yes, we have tons of great stories that needed to be told, and that people from Vancouver would not have had a chance to see otherwise, because these are not films that are coming to theatres, necessarily. So it's a unique opportunity to me for people to just dive into them. Mm-hmm. And, then, you know, both people that are film buffs,
1: or people that are just curious, or people that just want to travel the world to a cinema. So that's a festival for everybody. Excellent. So will it be different film? Would it be different movies shown in different cities?
7: Yes. Absolutely. Well, now, we cannot prevent a filmmaker um, or producer or distributor to to submit their films to several of the black film festivals. And then we cannot say, no, 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 because you've been selected in Vancouver, you're not going to be selected, you know, accepted in Toronto or elsewhere. So this is not the call we can make. So that that can happen that a film um is both you know selected at in Vancouver and then later on in Toronto or vice versa or in Montreal or what 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 have you. So um that can happen. However, we want each festival to um be very very particularly original and local at the same time as it is international and have like this you know Vancouver vibe, Vancouver you know flavor. And the good news is also to me Um, It's important that we discuss different uh, matters and topics that are important and relevant to the film industry, but also to our society. That is why we put together the black market. The black market is a corner where we have panel discussions. It's free. It's online. It's going to be on Facebook during the festival. And people will discuss everything that has to do with the film industry. And Mm -hmm. most of the panelists, they are local, um, you know, people from Vancouver. So that is great. Uh, Another way to amplify voices, Black voices there.
1: Excellent. So all we have to do is look up Vancouver International Black Film Festival?
7: All we have to do is to go to Vancouver Black Film Fest. Dot com And you know what? When you get there, you can discover the whole program at your own pace, and you can do something fantastic besides reading, you know, all the lineup and then the synopsis and seeing the trailers. Everybody can even buy their passes, and the pass is only for $39. It is like, a, it is a, quite a deal mm-hmm. um, because it's a welcoming prize um, for everybody that are going to be, you know, having their DNA in this first edition. And everybody can say, hey, I was there for that very first edition. <laughs> when Spike Lee will be coming in and all the celebrities down the road, they can say, hey, I was there since the very first edition See? online for $39 only.
1: You make it sound like such a great deal. <laughs> You're right, Fabian. Thank you so much for your time this morning. <laughs> Thank you so much to you. Bye-bye. That's Fabian Colas, who's the president and founder of the Black Film Festival in Canada, talking about the one that's happening in Vancouver, the Vancouver International Black Film Festival for the first time ever, happening December 9th to the 12th. It is online. All you have to do is go to their website and check it out.